0: Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. School? There was a more specific answer than just school. What was it? Exams, yeah. It's exam season. Almost, for some, if you're doing GCSEs, I think I looked it up. The first GCSE exam is going to be on the 13th of May for WGAC. ASs, A-levels, so on and so forth. Um, Teenagers or young people who have been doing SATs in school, just... Be comforted with this, that even JP, who was on the stage earlier, has been in exams. But you're finished now, aren't you, mate? You had one exam, is done with, it's dealt with, and you can just enjoy the rest of your summer. But as we stand on the cusp of exam season and the stress that it brings to individuals, the strains that it puts on families as Children don't necessarily do the amount of revision that their parents want. It got me thinking about how we as a society, as people, view knowledge. Or you could think of it in the opposite direction, how we view ignorance. Um, We really do value knowledge, don't we? We can literally put a monetary price on knowledge. We know how much it costs for children to go through the educational system that we have. We know how much it costs to pay fees to go to universities. And apparently, we are willing to spend vast, vast, vast amounts of money on gaining knowledge. On the flip side, you could say that we despise ignorance. That we think not knowing, being in the dark, um, is a bad, bad thing. We all know that knowledge equals power, but ignorance, I think, comes with its own rewards as well. Our experience of ignorance, I think, is a daily experience. Not knowing everything has an impact on our lives. These are some of the things that I thought, probably daily, we all experience because none of us can claim to know everything. Anxiety, worrying about what might happen because we don't really know how things will pan out. Confusion, because in the moment we don't know what's going on. Frustration, because a situation in which we feel like we should be in control because we think we know everything, those who think they know everything probably in the most dangerous situation of all, uh, things aren't going as we expect, and surprise. Something happens, we experience something that we hadn't anticipated. And so ignorance is bliss, you know, that's another conversation. But all of these things come from us not knowing everything. We fight against these things, in a sense, by trying to gain knowledge, by trying to gain wisdom, and so on and so forth. Spending time, spending money, spending vast amounts of emotions over the next couple of weeks. Those of you who've got teenagers, vast amounts of emotions are going to be spent on this, getting rid of ignorance and replacing it with knowledge. But what has all this got to do with God? Because if you're a guest here, let me just fill you in. We're spending a number of weeks looking at God, who he is, more specifically, who he's revealed himself to be in scripture, coming to understand what He is like, his character, his attributes, his nature, um, how we see that displayed in Jesus and why that's really, really great news for us. Well, quite simply... The God who we meet in the Bible is a knowing God, isn't he? He's a God who seems to know an awful lot about an awful lot. If we just think of some of the big stories, the sort of stories that our kids have gone off to Sunday school to learn this morning, all of them almost show us, demonstrate to us something about the God who knows. Think about one of the very first stories in Scripture, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they have rejected God's instructions. They've decided to listen to themselves and to listen to the serpent. They've rebelled. They've eaten the fruit, and now they're hiding. And they think that hiding in the bushes, hiding behind some trees, is going to hide them and hide what they've done from God. But God comes, and he knows. He asks certain questions, but he knows already. Chapter 4 when we read um, about Adam and Eve's first children, Cain and Abel, um, spoiler alert if you haven't read it already, Cain kills Abel and the Lord comes and he asks him the question, Well, where is your brother then, Cain? And Cain tries to kind of um, um, argue, lie his way out of the situation. There's been no human witness to what's gone on, but the Lord knows, God knows. In spite of his deception, in spite of his lies, though there was nobody else to bear witness to it, God knew exactly what had happened. If you fast forward in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, as the people um, known as Israel are going into the land, they're taking claim of the land, there's a young man called Echan who decides that he's going to profiteer in a, in a specific way through what they're doing. So he um, steals some gold, he steals some uh, precious stones from a city that they've just um, attacked, and he buries it. And you can almost, as you read the story, see that in his mind he's thinking, if I leave this here now, buried under the ground, I can come back when no one's watching, when no one sees, and I can take these and I can be rich. Only God sees. The soil that it is buried under doesn't do anything to stop God from knowing exactly what Achan has done, exactly what he is plotting, what he's planning to do with it. God knows. We spent some time um, last year, I think it was, in 1 Samuel, looking at the life of David. And one of the stories we would get to, or will get to, when we go back to 2 Samuel, is David abusing Bathsheba. Uh, it's a famous story from his life, where he steals another man's wife. She gets pregnant, and he's uh, overcome with guilt, so he tries to hide it to the extent that he goes and plots for her husband's murder. And in spite of his plotting, his scheming, his struggling to keep what he had done wrong hidden, God knew, and he sent Nathan the prophet to show David that God knew. And all of these stories kind of start showing us uh, a picture of God who is a knowing God, a seeing God, a God who cannot be kept in the dark, against whom even our greatest attempts of concealment are totally and utterly wasted. He's a God who knows. And in these examples, he's a God who sees all that we do in our lives. More than that, though, he's a God who knows our thoughts. Um, If you kept on working your way through the Old Testament, you might get somewhere like Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is sent by God to speak to some of the evil leaders, the rulers who are just absolutely ruining the nation. And the Spirit comes on Ezekiel and causes him to declare this, you say one thing, you evil leaders, but I know, the Lord speaking, what's in your mind. So it's not something that's been done now. It's something that's simply been thought. God says that he sees it, that he knows it. These are examples of God knowing. Going back to 1 Samuel, uh, you might remember the occasion when David encouraged his mighty men to go and save a city called Kayla, And having saved the city, news got to David that Saul knew that he was there and that Saul might potentially be, be- coming to trap him. I'll just read this out to you now. So David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Calah and destroy the town on account of me. Question, will the citizens of Calah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard, Lord God of Israel? Tell your servant. And the Lord said he will. Again, David asked, and will the citizens of Cala surrender me, and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. Uh, I share that story with you because that is an example, not just of God knowing what has happened or will happen or what people are thinking, but it shows us just how the knowingness of God is. He knows what would happen, what might happen. Now, David flees the city that he's speaking about there. So there's never an opportunity for the people to hand him over. But God knows. God knows that if David stayed there, that's exactly what would happen. So over and over and over again, story after story, where we encounter God in our Bibles, we observe that Yahweh the Lord is a God who is knowing. A God who knows our actions, a God who knows our thoughts, a God who knows events that will happen, that have happened, that could happen. I'll share a couple of blanket statements with you as well from the scriptures, just to like help this to land for us. In Hebrews chapter four, we read this: "Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is c- uncovered and laid bare before the eyes to, of him to whom we must give account." Translation: God is knowing. God knows it absolutely all. And then from Psalm 147, which is what we opened the service with, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limits. I've titled it God is Knowing, but Einstein actually said, any fool can know. This description of God is taking it one step further, isn't it? The point is understanding. We meet in our Bibles a God who is beyond knowing about something, but a God who understands, who comprehends. What about Jesus? What about Jesus as the one who knows? Jesus is God with us. So if all these stories, all these statements in Scripture are presenting a truth to us about what God is like, we should expect to find the same thing in Him, shouldn't we? Well, I wonder if you can think of any examples from Mark's gospel, because we've spent a long time going through Mark's gospel. Two occasions jumped off the, um, the screen, <laughs> the page at me. You can say I was typing this on my laptop. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Um, two occasions. The first one is Mark chapter two, the healing of a paralyzed man. He's lowered through the roof. You remember that scene, don't you? It's quite famous anyway, whether you were with us when we were going through Mark or not jesus is at home and there's such a big crowd that nobody else can get into the house so someone digs a hole in the roof and they lower this chap through and jesus looks at him and rather than seeing his disability as something that needs fixing he sees him as a person who is searching for forgiveness so he utters some really famous words son your sins are forgiven and this really confused certain people who were there. Mark records that there were secret murmurings, um, unspoken concerns amongst the leaders um, and the teachers of the law at that point. They were asking in their hearts, in their minds, who can forgive sins apart from God? We explored this going through Mark. It was a sensible question for them to ask. But this is what Mark records. Mark chapter 2, verse 8 Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. Like even the man Jesus that we encounter in the gospels had a special knowledge, had a special perception. Even things that were going on in the inside of people, Jesus knew. The second example was amongst the same sort of group of people. It's towards the end of his gospel. Mark chapter 12 is a very similar situation. There's two groups, Pharisees and Herodians. They've come together to um, oppose Jesus, to trick him, to trap him. They've got a question. It's designed to create division. There's no decent answer, apparently. They ask him the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And this is what Mark records, Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Like he saw something, he knew, he understood exactly what was going on. No doubt part of that could be understood from the circumstances, but I reckon there was more going on there. There was Jesus who was with them in the flesh, but was God who is knowing, who sees all, who understands all things. I think actually, if we want to go to the Gospels and to see this in Jesus's life, it's not Mark's Gospel we'll turn to, but it's John's Gospel that we'll turn to. Um, John's Gospel, again, has got some famous incidences, famous stories where we see this. The woman at the well in Samaria, Jesus sits with her. He talks with her for a while. Um, He answers her questions. He asks her questions of her own. We don't I hear every single uh, sentence that was uttered in that conversation. But this is how she later goes and encourages her neighbors to come and listen to Jesus. She says, come and see a man who told me everything I'd ever done. Like her experience of Jesus was that he just knew. He knew everything. Equally, you could go to Peter and Jesus post-resurrection. They're on the beach. They've just had a nice breakfast of fish. Doesn't sound nice to me, but you know, different times and all that. And Jesus is, is asking Peter questions. And this is how Peter answers one of them. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Now, It's not a a grand declaration in the same way as as Hebrews or or Psalm where Peter has thought this through and he's he's trying to objectively um, relay something about Jesus. But it's there, isn't it? It's there that Peter is just with Jesus and he recognizes that Jesus knows. He kind of senses this futility in the question and answer that's going on. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. I think actually the clearest way, the clearest sense that we get that Jesus is the knowing God of the Bible throughout John's gospel it isn't specific stories or declarations that people made, but it's in the imagery that John uses throughout his gospel. This is the sort of thing that gets a certain niche of people very excited. I'm one of those people. But did you know that throughout John's gospel, there's um, a lot that goes on to do with light and darkness, night and day. It doesn't matter if you're watching uh, TV, drama, whether you've gone to the cinema to watch a, a big blockbuster, whether you're reading a novel, or whether you're reading the Bible. The people who write things down shape things in such a way that sometimes more than just the literal words that are being used are used to communicate things to us. And all the way through John's gospel, if you've got eyes to see it, you will see it. He powerfully, purposefully uses light and darkness to show us and to teach us things about Jesus and about others. Pretty simply, those who are in the dark don't know. And that's a common expression for us nowadays, isn't it? Oh, he's in the dark about something. They don't know. When it's night and people are coming to Jesus, it's a symbol, it's a picture that they don't know, that they don't understand. Whereas those who are enlightened, or things that happen in the day, John uses that imagery in those situations to to show us and explain knowledge and understanding. Jesus is the light that has come into the darkness. That is exactly how John opens up his gospel. And how does he describe that darkness? He describes that darkness as people not recognizing Jesus. Straight away, dark, don't understand, don't see clearly. And then the opposite end of that is light. Well, not just someone who does know, but Jesus is the light, is knowing, is all knowledge. John chapter three, Nicodemus comes and John is very careful to record that it happens at nighttime. And Nicodemus is someone who is inquiring, he's searching, he wants to know the truth about Jesus, the truth about himself, the truth about the whole world and everything. But he comes at night because he is at that point, ignorant. In John chapter 6, the disciples have just witnessed Jesus feeding 5,000 people at once. And if you know anything about the disciples, is that they're ignorant, that they don't see, that they don't understand who Jesus is or really the full extent of what he's doing. And so the very next story that John records is them going off in a boat, And darkness coming. They see Jesus out walking on the water. And they just can't figure out. They can't fathom what it is that they're experiencing. Because they don't know. In John chapter 20, no doubt with tears in her eyes, Mary Magdalene runs to the tomb to... um, What's the right word? Anoint, embalm, you know, taking the spices and what have you to Jesus' tomb. And John says she goes while it was still dark. Because at that point, she hadn't herself realized who Jesus was or that he had risen from the dead. But you know, he comments just a couple of verses later, having experienced the risen Jesus, that it wasn't dark anymore, that she was in the light. She knew that Jesus who had been raised from the dead. So it's that sort of imagery and imagination that John uses so powerfully when Jesus makes this declaration, famous declaration, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will no longer be in darkness, but in light. Can you see he's not just making a statement about, I don't know, goodness and badness, about being on one side or the other. He's making a statement about Jesus being the knowing God of the Bible that we encounter so, so many times. That Jesus is both the giver of knowledge and knowledge itself to us. Now, I've labored this point. I want us to see not just that God is a knowing God, actions, past, future, possible thoughts, desires, ideas that we have. And not that Jesus falls nicely into that bracket and we have examples and reasons for considering Him in exactly the same way. I want us to see that, because it's against that backdrop that we can really consider what Jesus did for us, that the whole Easter story. Good Friday, his being killed. Easter Sunday, his rising to life again. All happens in the context of a Jesus who knew. Consider this now for a moment. Jesus knew exactly what you were like when he came to live on this earth. It wasn't a surprise for him when he grew up and he encountered men and women, boys and girls like you and me who were Selfish, who were arrogant, who were unkind, who were half hearted. That wasn't a surprise to Jesus because Jesus knew. Jesus knew as well, think about this, exactly what would happen to him when he came to live on this earth. The rejection by the religious leaders. The rejection from the Roman authorities, the plotting, the scheming, even Judas betraying him didn't take Jesus by surprise. He knew all of that. It was not unknown to Jesus that he would suffer and that he would die. He knew that and still chose it. This has encouraged me so much this week that Jesus knew exactly what would happen when he drew his final breath and committed his spirit into the loving Father's hands. He knew that Good Friday was not the end. He knew that on the third day he was going to rise to glorious new life again. Just stop and think about that. If Jesus is knowing, it, doesn't, it means his entire life was lived in that knowledge. Nothing you do, nothing you say, nothing you are comes a surprise to him. Nothing that he experienced was a bolt from the blue for Jesus. He knew it, he knows it, and he understood it all. Quickly then, so what? Like if that's true, what difference does it make? Well, I think it's amazing news and I think it does make difference in our lives. I think it makes a huge difference when it comes to our Confession. When it comes from us being open and honest with God, but more importantly with ourselves about the sorts of people we are. Now, I know in our personal relationships, there are lots of things we would rather keep hidden, aren't there? Just like those stories I mentioned Adam and Eve, Cain. Echan, David, the religious leaders in Ezekiel's time, even the people who Jesus encountered. there were things, they were aspects of what they had done in their character that they didn't really want to get out. Sometimes we can act like that with God as well. Sometimes we can act, um, imagine, live our lives as if so- we need to keep up a pretense that he's only going to be happy with us, he's only going to be a loving, kind, saviour God that we speak about on a a Sunday here in church if we are certain people. Bad, but only to a certain extent. Or, or, Or wrong ends, but only in the right areas, if that makes sense. There are certain things, certain desires, certain attitudes that we'd prefer to keep hidden from each other, certainly, from ourselves and God. But so what? What does it matter if God is not? God already knows. God already knows exactly what you are like. He already knew what David and Achan and Cain and Adam. He already knows. Therefore, for us, confession should be a freeing thing. Now, I'm not talking about... (laughs) Just to clarify this, I'm not talking about making your way down to 6 College Street during the week, knocking on the door of the office... Come in inside with myself or John and, and letting us know all the things. I mean, being open and honest with your Maker. Being open and honest with yourself. Being open and honest with Jesus, your Saviour. You don't need to keep things in the dark, it's futile anyway. There is freedom. We can confess our sins. And John read it earlier, I think, didn't he? God is quick to forgive. What other difference does it make? I think it makes a difference in our prayer lives. Now, to begin with, this seems counterintuitive. Like, if God already knows everything, surely that's an invitation not to pray. Like, what's the point? Because he knows what I'm going to say. He knows what's going to happen anyway, so nothing I say can make a difference. Now, that's only if you consider prayer in one certain wrong way. As if prayer is an opportunity for us to inform God or twist God's arm. I think so often that is what we limit prayer to, and it is utterly and totally not what prayer is supposed to be about. i make a statement. It's a dangerous statement because I haven't fully thought this through, but I, I think I'm going down the right lines. Prayer is one of the only things in the world that is about us. Prayer is one of the only things in the world that is about us. Because I genuinely believe that prayer is about changing and shaping us. Like if God already knows what you're going to say, if God already knows what's going to happen or what could possibly happen, so it's not about informing him or twisting his arm, then really the only party who's left in prayer to be changed is us. Even when Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, this then is how you should pray. He prefaces it with, go and pray to your Father in heaven who already knows what it is that you're going to say. And we look and we read the Lord's Prayer and we think, oh, well, these are, these are things that we are sending up to God, that somehow we're letting Him know what we think of Him, what we need. We're asking for certain things back from Him. I want us to consider how even the prayer, like the Lord's Prayer, is there to shape us. How prayer is an opportunity for us to be worked on by God when we come to Him. When we're open, when we're honest, when we're asking for things, when we're thanking Him for things, when we're discussing and confessing and being open about our struggles. Like, He knows. So what difference is prayer making in our lives? I think, again, it should be a hugely freeing thing that we don't have to worry about how we pray as if somehow we are tricking God into action. Oh, in case I I leave something out, my spoken prayers, God won't know about it and be involved in it. It's freeing that he already knows and he's calling us to be open, honest, silent, perhaps, listening more than speaking, perhaps, but searching and for looking how God can be at work changing us even in our prayers. So what? Lastly, I think just in general, if we recognize, genuinely recognize this morning that we have a God who knows, then that should give us confidence, I listed quite a few things as the um, rewards of ignorance at the start, didn't I? Our experiences of anxiety, of frustration, of confusion, of surprise. If God is not ignorant, if Jesus is knowing, then that means he never experiences those things. That he never gets anxious, that he never gets frustrated, that he never gets confused, that he never gets surprised. They don't touch a God who not only knows, but understands. So when we find ourselves in his hands, I genuinely think that it can help us to live lives that are freer from those things too, can't they? If we just admit that we're not the knowing God, but he is the knowing God, that everything is in his hands, then it transforms us. It won't remove anxiety from our lives, but it'll lighten that load. It won't remove confusion in certain situations, but you know, confusion doesn't then have to be our enemy. It won't stop us being frustrated, but it'll mean we've got somewhere to go with that frustration. And it'll turn surprise from something that we are fearful of to something that might actually enrich our lives. Do you know, God knows. God is knowing. And that is wonderful news especially when we look at the gospel of Jesus' coming, his living, his dying, his rising in our place. None of that was an accident. None of that was out of the blue. It was entirely for the people who we are here and today. But it makes a difference in our lives, in all of that and beyond it. It should give us confidence. It should encourage us to pray, and it should give us the freedom to confess. And we need all of those things, to be set free and to be saved by Jesus. And we get them because God is knowing. I'm going to pray. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amforchurch.com If you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.